Welcome everybody to the Tripolitan. My name is Rafat Yamak. I'm excited to offer another episode today uh, about Syria this time. The the huge, huge, huge uh, news story, which is Syria, which continues to dominate uh, headlines ever since 2011, since the beginning of the uprising. We recently passed the uh, 10th anniversary of the Syrian uprising, started in March 15th, 2011, until today. The issue remains unresolved. There continues to be uh, violence inflicted on the Syrian people, primarily from the so-called Syrian government. Uh, today we have a very special guest. Um, his name is Arian Zabi. Arian Zabi is a Syrian-American software professional. His family is from Dara'a. He's also a father, and he has been part of the opposition to the Assad regime since 1970. Arian, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, so as I mentioned in the intro, we just recently passed the 10th anniversary of the Syrian uprising. And, uh, you know, before we begin, I have to offer condone, my condolences to the Syrian people. Uh, because, you know, we don't know the exact amount of people that have been killed. But, you know, some say it's reached a million, if not more. Um, you have about 13 million people displaced. It's just continues to be a you know unending tragedy. So I just wanted to offer my condolences to the Syrian people before we begin. Thank you. Um, you know, may they rest in peace. Um, it's an unbelievable tragedy. It's a catastrophe, actually. Um, that is on a, on such a scale that you know when you think about it, your mind kind of goes numb. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it just it just seems like there is no um, political will to put an end. To this, uh, to this tragedy, can just continues going on and on. Uh, the fact that you know the regime has sur- has survived, you know, barely, but it's still surviving till today is just uh, it's a huge stain on humanity. To be honest, one hundred percent. Again, you know, Syria is it's such a complicated topic, and when I mean complicated, I mean there's so many tangents that we can go off on because, as you know, there's so many political and global and regional uh, interests invested. So, uh, you know, we will try to make it as, as focused as possible. And and I'm especially me, I'm going to try to make it as focused as possible because it's difficult to remain focused when it comes to Syria with, as I mentioned, so many tangents. However, I just wanted to kind of begin with, you know, because Hafez al-Assad in itself, that's, a, that's another podcast episode. I wanted to begin with Bashar al-Assad's uh, you know, uh, rise to power, basically, after Hafez al-Assad passed away and Bashar al-Assad took over. Um, a lot of people were saying that he's a reformer, you know, he's coming with some new ideas, he's not like his father. However, clearly, that's not the case, or else the 2011 uprising wouldn't have happened. What would you say was the, or one of the, what would, what would you say the primary reason was that causes Syrian people to basically say, enough is enough, it's time to revolt against this regime? Um, I think it was a you know accumulation of of many many different factors. Um, so obviously uh, decades and decades of oppression. So um, the Ba'ath regime, I mean, came to power, um, you know, through in essence a coup, and they consolidated power. And they were from from the get go, you know, very totalitarian. Now, granted, things got a lot worse during. Um, Hafez's uh, tenure when, when he took over, but um, the oppression 
and the subjugation of the Syrian people um, has been synonymous with uh, with the Ba'athist uh, takeover of, of the government in Syria. I think that happened probably in 1963, if my memory serves me well. So um, you have decades and decades of oppression, uh, subjugation, torture, uh, silencing, um, and um, you take that with the state of the Arab world at the time, which in many countries, they suffered the exact same levels of, of humiliation and oppression. And then the Arab Spring, you know, exploded. And um, it just really became, became an inspiration uh, for everybody because um, the whole idea of uh, it can never happen here or it can never be us uh, was kind of shattered with seeing you know, one country rebelling after a tyrant after another. So eventually um, it, it arrived to Syria and, and the, um, yes, the veneer changed with, with uh, Bashar as supposedly as, as a reformer and all that. But in reality, the oppression and the mechanisms uh, that existed during Hafa still existed in Syria after. And uh, the people just had enough. It's plain and simple. People had enough and they mustered enough courage uh, to actually you know, demand, uh, demand a change. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so as you know, I'm Lebanese and, uh, we have a huge, uh, Syrian, you know, population that's, that's in Lebanon. And I remember, you know, when, when, when all the protests were happening, when it started in Tunis, you know, a lot of people would just say that, you know, in Syria, it's impossible. There's no way the Syrian people are going to rebel against the regime. The Syrian people are different. And I think that stemmed from the fact that the barbarity of the Syrian regime is on another level, even compared to any, you can't compare, for example, you know, Bashar al-Assad to Zain al-Abidin bin Ali, for example, of Tunis, or even Mubarak. The, the savagery and brutality is just, you know. Absolutely. And, yeah. and this savagery and brutality does have a history. So mm -hmm. it's not like people were just, you know, uh, imagining or fantasizing about this, this uh, brutality. Um, we saw what happened in 1982. Um, you know, they virtually applied the same strategy that applied in 2011 on one city uh, in Hama. And they killed anywhere between 30 to 40,000 people. They completely destroyed and demolished that city uh, in three weeks. Um, that's just, just, just unheard of. I mean, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people getting killed a day. Um, same thing in, in um, you know, earlier in, uh, in uh, Aleppo in 1980, there was, there was a huge, uh, you know, um, uh, reprisal against, um, you know, elements that rebelled and opposition uh, to Assad. Um, so um, Tadmor, uh, the, the massacring of, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of political prisoners in, in jail there. So... Um, the, the, the well-documented history, a rich history of, of torture uh, by a regime um, where you have uh, well-known techniques and well-known torture chambers uh, throughout uh, Syria uh, and Damascus uh, that have been, uh, you know, subject to human rights uh, reports. So the people know, the people understand, and they've seen firsthand what this regime has been capable of um, 
I mean, until now, up until the uprising, to be honest, people couldn't even talk about Hama, and and they were referred to it as Ahdas uh, Hama, like the 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 situation in Hama, like nobody could even utter the fact that Hama was destroyed and killed, and um, because it was such a taboo, you couldn't even acknowledge uh, the massacre that took place. That's how much fear and oppression existed uh, in society uh, for decades. Right. And, and even till today, you still have people that are, you know, um, uh, the byproduct of what happened in Ham. A lot of people that escaped, that, that managed to escape with their lives, you know, till today, they haven't been back to Syria since the 80s because, you know, they're fearful of being, you know, incarcerated and put in prison and tortured. So it's just insane to me, and and I'm and I'm fearful that this model will be applied with the 13 million Syrians internally displaced and outside of Syria that they'll never be able to come back if this regime, you know, remains. I am 100 percent with you. Um, there is absolutely no reason to believe or trust this regime, and you know, why would you want to come back uh, to those that destroyed you, killed you? and tortured you and humiliated you. Uh, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, these people have lost everything. And on top of it, you want them to come back to a situation that's even dire and worse than it was uh, prior to the revolution. It just makes absolutely no sense to me. 100%. Yes. And, you, you know, when you look back at 2011, which seems like, you know, 2011, I was a senior in high school. <laughs> and I remember, and it just seems like a lifetime ago when it began. Um, you know, the the protests. And obviously, um, the way that it started, I mean, the way that it was reported, at least, you, it actually started in your hometown, right? In, in your hometown province of Dara. Um, yes. When, which you can, if you, if you don't mind going into a bit of a detail about how it actually began um, in Dara. So, um, see, I, I remember, um, you know, getting um, bits and, and pieces of what was happening um, before the actual uh, uprising started. Um, so the uprising started in Dara on March 18th. So what I recall was, you know, relatives, you know, telling us that they arrested a number of students. Um, they were in uh, elementary and junior high. So we're talking about kids anywhere from 10 to 14 years old. Uh, because they wrote um, on the wall of the school, um, it's your turn, ya doctor, jayik doctor, ya doctor, and al-shaab yurid isqat al-nizam, the people want to follow the regime. This is the, the famous uh, slogan that was developed uh, during the Arab Spring. Right. So um, the regime's response to this was by arresting um, these children, and mm. they proceeded to uh, torture them. I'm talking about they removed their fingernails yeah. and, and beat them up. Um, so when, when the parents went um, you know, inquiring about the state of their children, and, and these children were gone for a long time, I'm talking about a couple of weeks. Just imagine you have, you have a 10-year-old kid or an 11-year-old kid, and, and they just are arrested. And you know what they do to, to, to people that they, they arrest. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of was the tipping point. Um, and um, eventually that caused the people to, um, you know, protest. And 
the regime's response to the to initial protests was um, shooting and killing. Uh, so I think two people were killed the first the first the first protest ever. And what happened was uh, there was a funeral after those people that were shot, and then the funeral turned into a protest, and then they shot and killed everybody else. So it kind of became a downward spiral, and Tara uh, became the epicenter of uh, the revolution. Uh, and you know, many people believe that if Dara didn't continue the uprising on its own for about you know two to three weeks, um, the revolution wouldn't have spread across all the other cities and towns. But um, Dara really held the fort and was the uh, uh, you know the spark. Uh, and eventually, it, it just spread everywhere. Yeah, and uh, you know, um, it, it's it's interesting that it started in Dara um, because I I have a lot of Darawi friends, <laughs> and uh, they're very distinct from the rest of Syria in terms of their, um, you know, when it comes to, for example, like family honor, uh, you know, because one of the things that was mentioned, uh, you know, from from that police station. Uh, you know, they said basically, forget about your kids, right? And if you can't forget about your kids, then bring your wives and we'll make you new kids. Um, just, you know, the, the despicable behavior that, you know, we're all accustomed to when it comes to uh, the yeah. Assad regime. And, uh, you know, they said that to the wrong people. <laughs> not that should, not that it shouldn't be said to anybody, but especially yeah. their always. You know, you don't want to mess yeah, with them when the, it comes the, to that. Yeah, they're, they're very uh, old school. They're very uh, tribal. Yeah. Um, um, in a sense, they are, you know, they value and honor uh, family and allegiance um, to, to your tribe or, or more than anything. So um, by, by, like you said, attacking uh, the honor, um, it, it kind of, uh, it pushed people over the limits. Yeah. You know, I wanted to kind of move on um, from, you know, how it started, obviously. It started off very peaceful, the protests in the beginning. Um, I think it was like the first six to eight months about. And then it obviously morphed into this armed revolt, uh, similar to uh, the Libyan scenario. Why, why do you, I mean, just kind of, you know, as someone who's followed Syria, um, why do you think it morphed into an armed revolt? Do you think it could have been avoided or was there no way out of it? Uh, when dealing with the Assad regime? Well, you know, I, I, I want to be pragmatic and tell you there is no way around it. But I'll be a fool because um, just the way the regime is constructed and the way the regime responded for eight months, it just seemed that, um, you know, it was inevitable. And people forget that there is a difference between, um, you know, the militarization of the revolution and the uh, takeover uh, with the extremists that happened later on. So the initial militarization was just Syrian um, officers, military, who seceded and left the army because they refused to kill their fellow citizens. And they decided to start actually protecting uh, those protesters. So the initial uh, uh, violence, if you want to call it that, or or, or uh, uh, 
people taking arms. It was really about protecting um, uh, the protesters. And then obviously um, that fell right into the hands of the regime because the regime from the get-go was trying to paint this as an extremist Islamic uh, rebellion uh, aimed at uh, you know, uh, destroying uh, minorities in Syria. Mm-hmm. And um, they are financed by you know, Wahhabi, uh, Taliban-like, etc. Right. And they, from the beginning, like from, from the first few days of the revolution, they put weapons inside Al-Umari Mosque in mm-hmm. Dara'a. Mm-hmm. And they try to say, "Look, you have you have weapons. You have you have uh, arms. You're trying to 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 do, and you have all these the whole idea of of Mendesin, uh, infiltrators saying that even the the people that were getting shot were actually getting shot by infiltrators who are, you know, from the rebel side killing killing the protesters in order to blame the regime. So they've always tried to uh, deny that they were using the violence. And now right. when um, you know, parts of the military um, started um, rebelling and taking sides with the protesters, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. It became like, hey, see, we've been telling you for eight months that these people were were militants, and now look at them. They're the ones who are raising their arms against the government. You know, what's uh, what's interesting, you, you reminded me of um, Walid al-Mu'allim, the Syrian foreign minister. Yes. And he was presenting this, you know, obviously there's a joke, you know, about the Syrian regime that they even lie, even when it comes to their weather channel, even when it comes to the weather program, they're always BSing. They're just, it's just in their blood. So Walid al-Mu'allim, the Syrian foreign minister, he had this presentation of, you know, showing, this was in the beginning, the first six to eight months when the revolution was peaceful. And they were, and he was showing this, you know, video of people like shooting in the air with AKs and yeah. you know, all this nonsense. And he's trying, he was trying to say that it was in Syria, and it turned out to be some video from Bebet Tabin, a district in Tripoli, Lebanon. Um, you know what I mean? And it's just like some, you know, some guys, whatever. Like it's nothing. Uh, but it, yeah. it just shows you the desperate attempt at the time in the beginning to kind of portray it as some kind of, you know, extremist uh, rebellion. The thing, the, the, I mean, the thing is that this, the Assad regime, you know, they've harmed and targeted minorities more so than any regime, probably. And the fact that they use that card to me is just ludicrous and hilarious to any serious student of history. Absolutely, absolutely, they have been, you know, brutal towards everybody, um, and um, they have. Well-documented crimes and well-documented, you know, Christians and Alawites and Druze who have been brutalized and killed uh, by uh, by the Assad regime. So it's 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 really you know um, absurd that you believe they are either protecting minorities or they are uh, the pinnacle of uh, quote unquote secular Arab regime, which when in fact, they are the total opposite of that, if you ask me. Yeah. No, definitely. You know, um, Professor Thomas Pure, um, he had this, uh, he just, he was just kind of, you know, I think he's in the University of Edinburgh. If I'm, if yeah, I'm yeah, he is. He is. Yeah. He was like showing like the sectarian makeup of, of the top cadres of the uh, Syrian military. And it just shows you how dominated it is by one certain sect, obviously belonging to the 
Yeah. Uh, Bashar al-Assad's uh, sect. So he was just kind of it was it was a great graphic. Uh, I need to try to find that again, but um, it just yeah. you know dispels that nonsense about being secular. Yeah. So 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 th- this this um, takeover uh, has been has was done over decades. Yeah. Um, so my father was the uh, information minister and the secretary, assistant secretary general of the Ba'ath Party. Wow, I did um, not know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, he was there in 1960. He, I think, he left politics. He resigned from the party in 1967. So he was early on, um, you know, with the Michel Aflaq and you know Salah Al Bitar. Everyone wow. when they took over. In '63, um, and then became the the information minister in '66, and then after the '67 war, he left. So he said that you know one of the first things that they did after um, they got rid of the uh, the union between Egypt and uh, uh, Syria is they made a conscious decision to get rid of all the uh, Sunni officers in the um, in the military and accused them of being uh, Nasriyin and having loyalties towards Abdul Nasser and they were obviously you know replaced and um, so you know you you kind of change the makeup over you know the, the changing of the makeup of the military and the, the structure of power was happening all the way before Hafid al-Assad took over. So we're talking about during Salah Hajdid's time and during the early days of... However, according to my father, um, because they were such naive, idealistic, um, you know, young uh, <laughs> people, yeah. they wouldn't even contemplate and think about it that this is a sectarian takeover or that they're changing the sectarian makeup of the military and power structure because they would look he would look that he would look down at himself as being sectarian for even thinking that they're like no 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 that's not what's happening they're not mm-hmm. doing this because because these people are this way and they're putting people this way i don't want, want to think that way because that will make me sectarian if i'm thinking that way mm-hmm. and obviously when uh the harakat tasheehiya took over uh, which is the correctional movement, which basically, in essence, cemented um, uh, the rule of uh, Assad. Mm-hmm. It became very clear that eventually, you know, that that was, there was a there was a takeover, and then there was an internal struggle uh, between Salah Hajdid and Hafid al-Assad. And then eventually, Salah uh, Salah Hajdid lost, and Hafid al-Assad won. Right. So it's kind of like a transitional, step by step takeover that. When it happened, they didn't even notice until it was too late, and then by then it was they had control of all the vital uh, power structures and elements within the government, and it was a little too late to, uh, to do anything about it. You know, it's it's one thing to hear this from uh, you know just a Syrian activist or you know a Syrian you know involved in Syrian politics or you know but it's another thing to hear it from uh from somebody who's who you when you heard it from your father who was an information minister that's yeah. that's a whole other different yeah. uh, correct correct it's it's it's, a, it's another podcast but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah but one of the reasons my father uh, and Hafid al-Assad um don't get along 
And he's been hostile toward my father um, for even before anything mm -hmm. was because during the 67 war, um, he, he wanted my father to lie about the takeover of Jolan. Wow. Um, and he wanted to basically say that, you know, announce that, you know, we lost 5,000 people in the battle and it was a big, and it was, but it wasn't. Um, he, you know, in essence, Hafid al-Assad announced the withdrawal before the, uh, before there was an Israeli army uh, right. uh, there. In fact, um, when my dad announced the withdrawal um, uh, and that, that Knetra fell, um, one of the guy called my, my father from the middle there. He goes, he goes, I'm in the middle of Knetra. There's not a single Israeli within four or five kilometers. What, why are you saying it fell? He was yeah. like, well, uh, Hafid called me as a, as a defense minister and told me it fell. So from that moment on, and when my dad refused to lie, and he, he actually, you know, uh, 129 people died yeah. uh, in, in the 67 war. I mean, that's nothing. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, he became very resentful of him. Um, and from that day, he kind of, you know, tried to, to eliminate him one way or another. You know, Hafez may have surrendered the Golan Heights, but Bashar al-Assad surrendered the whole country. <laughs> And it just uh, it just keeps getting worse, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of move over to one of the bright spots of the Syrian uprising that that happened. Unfortunately, it was crushed though. But it's definitely something to go back to and to remind people. Like I said, 2011 seemed it's a decade ago, and so many, you know, so many things have happened, and sometimes you forget about those little bright spots. And I just wanted to kind of bring it back to the table. And I wanted to set up my question within this context. You know, you had a bunch of democratic councils, for example, in Daraya. It was just it was just great to see, you know, people were voting, democratic elections. You're talking about in a country that hasn't had, you know, democratic elections in, in forever, basically. You know, you had the uh, their outlet, Ainab uh, Baladi, um, which was also, you know, this media outlet that was for the first time sharing different point of views, what, what was going on in the country. Um, and it wasn't just Daraya, obviously. You had these democratic councils all over the country. However, even with all these, you know, this, 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 these, these flowering, you know, councils emerging all over the country, you still had a U.S. reluctance to really exert any military muscle to basically stop the Assad and Iranian onslaught, and obviously the uh, the Iranian-backed uh, Shia militias at the time. Why do you think this is the case? Why do you think the U.S. was so reluctant, and just kind of, especially after the the uh, Huta twenty thirteen chemical attacks? Why do you think they didn't exert that same military muscle that they exerted in Libya? So, in my opinion, that was completely one hundred percent Obama's prerogative. Mm -hmm. uh, Obama was adamant about um, basically being the anti-Bush. So whatever Bush did, I'm doing, I did the opposite. So he was very haunted by Bush's legacy and trying to cement his own legacy as being somebody who was, wasn't like George Bush. So mm -hmm. in, his, in his opinion, the greatest achievement would be to disarm Iran from the potential nuclear weapons mm -hmm. and to show like, hey, Obama, you know, did to Iran 
peacefully what Bush did to Iraq through military end up causing, you know, another monumental uh, catastrophe in the 21st century by killing, again, hundreds of thousands and causing millions of refugees and destroying a country. Yeah. So the price of, of that legacy was sacrificing Syria because Iran would never give up Syria, would never give up Assad. So basically, Syrians, the Syrian revolution became a bargaining chip where it became a de facto understanding that, you know, wink, wink, we'll let you do whatever you want to maintain the situation um, and um, just just sign the, 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 uh, the, the treatment, the treaty. Yeah. Um, so there, there's that aspect. And then there, there's the aspect of this, the general, um, you know, phobia of democracy. Um, so, I mean, they tell you that they're afraid of, of uh, Islamist takeover, but they're really not afraid of an Islamist takeover. They're afraid of a democratic takeover. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, you saw that in, in the entire region. You know, every every revolution was was fought with a bitter counter revolution. You know, e you know Egypt is, is the biggest example. Hmm. So, for them, what they feared wasn't wasn't uh, you know the Muslim Brotherhoods or 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 this or that faction or that that faction. No, what they are afraid of is really having a democratic uh, Arab world, a democratic, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, a democratic representation. From, from any of, the, of those countries is not going to be very friendly towards either Israel or the West in general. Mm -hmm. And they're afraid of that. And they don't know uh, what the consequences or the side effects of having such things. So for them, uh, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. So mm -hmm. it became more of a um, hedging their bets. It's like, hey, we know this, we know who they are, we know how brutal, how nasty, but at least we have a, a certain level of understanding uh, that we've had in this area, in this region for the last, you know, two, three, four decades. If we're going to try something new right now, it, you know, it, we don't know, we don't know what's going to happen. And we would rather not deal with, with uncertainties. So for them, um, the stability of the devil you know was also a main driver for refusing uh, to support the Syrian revolution. Yeah, and you know when when you look back, you just think that it, it, I think it shows you how entrenched the Assad regime is and how uh, how the Assad regime has long and deep ties to you know global governments, even in the West, because this could have been solved. I mean, imagine if just I'm just thinking like what ifs. You know, I know this isn't really. Uh, it's not really a, a useful exercise, but you, you think, I mean, what would have happened if they just told Assad, you know, to step down, replace him, you know, with somebody who's also kind of, uh, I don't know, um, you know, not, not, too re not too revolutionary, but just somebody who'll take over. I think many, many Syrians would have, you know, accepted it, I feel like. 100%. I mean, people forget the first, you know, few months of the Syrian revolution, people were asking for reform. Yeah, they were not asking for a, a complete, uh, you know, uh, change of of the regime or of the society. Yeah. However, after the regime, you know, started showing its true colors, it became 
you know, common knowledge that you cannot reform this. You, you cannot reform the savagery. Like, it's just going to have to be completely overturned. Yeah. And that's when, you know, things became out of control because it's, it's almost like uh, an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they were abandoned by everybody. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a monumental task for Syrians to overcome having to fight uh, counter-revolutionaries from all sides and being abandoned. Nobody, nobody being with them. Not, not a single country uh, or organization um, supported them. And eventually they were basically became pawns in some sort of a geopolitical scheme and you know, they were used by everybody. Yeah. And, you know, all the aid that was provided, because some people will say, oh, no, what are you talking about? The Syrian, you know, rebels were getting aid and look at these pictures, but everything was tied aid. You know, like there was, there were certain fronts that couldn't be opened unless there was some green light. Uh, This happened many times. I mean, there was many times like a front would be initiated against the Assad regime. But, you know, and it wasn't in the... At the end of the day, it's, it, to me, it was, it was very obvious, right? So if you wanted to neutralize Assad and you want to help the rebels, you would give them anti-aircraft, exactly. uh, uh, you know, weapons. Yep. Those weapons were taboo. They weren't allowed in. Yep. What does that mean? It meant that Assad can just bomb you with, with airplanes and helicopters all he wants, and there's nothing you can do about it. And you saw barrel bombs destroying one city after another yep. because the, re- the rebels didn't have anything to counter for that. So yes. to me, that's the biggest sign of how they were not interested in helping because that was the first thing they could have helped with, neutralizing the air power. And they never did that. 100%. And, you know, this brings me to my, to my other question. And one, one of the uh, hallmarks of the Syrian uprising, the things that are associated with it, is the level of disinformation and ignorance when it comes to Syria, it's ridiculous because you have all these outlets and, and news stories and yet people still don't know anything, which reminds me, I don't know, it's kind of funny, but it's also sad. If you remember Gary Johnson, when they asked him about Aleppo and he's like, <laughs> you know, he's like, what is Aleppo? If you yeah. remember that, you know, of so course. there's so much disinformation from, especially from uh, leftist outlets, unfortunately. Uh, would you kind of, if you don't mind touching touching on that a little bit, um, this the you know, leftist discourse when it comes to Syria and how they've really shaped the disinformation age when it came to Syria. So uh, it's it's a very, you know, interesting and but a little bit of a controversial topic. But um, there's a lot of, you know, misguided uh, convictions among the left. And a lot of them are centered around American exceptionalism. So if, uh, you know, the U.S. takes stance A, then we assume this is the wrong stance and we're going to oppose it. So just because the U.S., you know, stood, even though they never actually supported fully, um, they gave the rhetoric, and there were some elements within the government, like McCain. They were, you know, pro-Syrian rebels or pro-Syrian revolution. They were asking for uh, Bashar to resign, etc. That was good enough for them to take the contrarian stance that that means Assad is good. Yeah. So it's such, it's such an elementary, it's such an elementary position. To take. It's very juvenile. It's very yeah. juvenile. So that's that's number one. Number two, you have this entire. Uh, 
fetish uh, fetishization of Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Hezbollah is viewed as this, you know, incredibly, you know, amazing, you know, force of good that, you know, defeated Israel in 06 and Israel wants to destroy it. And, and they're the only ones that brought honor and, and, and victory in, in six years of, of, of war with Israel when they defeated it. And, 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 and so now Hezbollah standing with, uh, with Israel, I mean, uh, with Syria, uh, all of a sudden gave them that, that legitimate, like, look, if, if, if Assad was evil, why would Hezbollah support evil? They would never do that. And mm. then there's unfortunately another thing is that there's the um, zest or love for conspiracy theories because mm -hmm. it just it simplifies things. It, it doesn't it doesn't allow us to 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 make difficult choices. So it's very easy to start demonizing uh, a group of people and accuse them of being terrorists or Al Qaeda or ISIS or extremists or Wahhabis. And basically, just assume that hey, look, you know, Saudi Arabia supports them, and and there that means they're evil, and and Qatar supports them, so they're Muslim Brotherhood, and Turkey supports them, and they're this and they're that, and it became extremely common to start using those tropes and start using those Islamophobic um, right-wing talking points uh, and apply them uh, towards Syria, but from the left. So uh, in essence. Uh, you had a reactionary, um, anti-progressive, anti-solidarity uh, uh, stance cloaked with revolutionary leftist rhetoric using Islamophobic language. So it was, it's kind of like a, like a very, you know, unique, uh, uh, but it, it turned out it's not really that unique because this is the same stance that took place in Bosnia yeah. Um, yeah. In, in, in the 90s. But unfortunately, you know, we didn't see it that way. Um, at least many of us didn't. Um, and then when now you look back and you kind of realize that the same template and the same tropes and the same demonization uh, that took place against Kosovo and Bosnia in the 90s, uh, were applied to a T uh, to Syria uh, decades later, and you know this is this is with respect to um, mostly you know Western leftists. Now, obviously, you have others that are, uh, in my opinion, more dirtier because they used to have solid views and then they switched one eighty degrees just one night, and I don't know what happened. Yeah, there. but Arab leftists aren't any better. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's 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 the same. You know, they they it's it's it the mentality is the same. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you still have, uh, you know, very, you know, principled leftists who, who stood and are still part of, of, of the opposition and the revolution. Right. Um, but uh, these people, they are not seen as leftists. They're not seen as, as in fact, they're, they're demonized. Mm -hmm. They're attacked. Like Yasin al-Hashtalah is attacked. Subh al-Hadidi is attacked. Right. Uh, George Sabra is attacked. Right. Um, and these are all, you know, you, you, you look at them, Salam Akile, Palestinian uh, Marxist. So mm -hmm. you look at them, these are all leftists. These are all, mm -hmm. you know, communist, Marxist, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. um, they all stood with the Syrian revolution. They stood against Assad. Mm -hmm. But instead of listening to them, uh, you just 
you know, smear them and, and basically call them, oh, they're just, you know, liberals. They're just being paid to spew these conspiracy yeah. theories, etc. So yeah. it, it, it's very, very disheartening um, watching the discourse uh, unfold that, you know, I can't remember a situation worldwide where you had a, a united front between the extreme right and the left right. um, together standing up against basically people who try to rebel mm-hmm. and prov- you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> provide yeah. a better society yeah. and, and take uh, down a, a very oppressive totalitarian regime. Yeah. I, it's, I mean, it's mind-blowing. There is a reason why, I mean, Tucker Carlson and Glenn Greenwald are comfortable with each other on, uh, you know, he's now a regular uh, guest on his show, appears regularly on Tucker Carlson. Um, and, you know, it's like you said, you have this convergence when it comes to Syria um, from the extreme right and the extreme left. And, uh, you know, going going back even to, you know, Arab leftists, um, you know, you yeah. have, for example, like, you know, the famous Abdel Bari Atwan, for example, who just... Yeah has just embarrassed himself uh, <laughs> repeatedly when it comes to, especially Syria, Annie. Yeah, it, it's really, it's really pathetic and sad. Yeah, I mean, uh, hey, you it. know, don't, don't, don't stop there. You know, Asad yeah. Abu Khalil. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You have Pierre Abu Saab. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ziad Al Rahbani. I mean, yes. like the list goes on and on. It's, it's just, it's incredible um, how you know you have people that that you know were all celebrating Egypt, and then two months later. The same thing happens in Syria, and they're all opposing it. Yep, yep, hundred percent. And and unfortunately, you know, they played a huge role in spreading this disinformation, uh, because you know, um, because they have had a historically pro-Palestinian position. So you know, it goes back to the elementary thinking. You know, yep. Unfortunately, oh yeah, he's okay. He's good on Palestine. That means whatever he's saying on Syria must be true. It's it, like, exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. dude, that's not how exactly. it works. <laughs> Exactly. And what it did, it, it provide legitimization of those conspiracy theories. Because, you know, when, when Chomsky doubts the chemical weapons attack, it it doesn't it's not oh, it's not just this this crazy, you know, uh you know, right wing, you know, uh Glenn Beck uh doubting it on or or Rush Limbaugh doubting it. It's like Chomsky is even saying that that, you know, why would Assad use chemical weapons and there's, you know, not enough answers or a lot of ambiguous questions that the report didn't didn't clearly identify. Blah blah blah. So in essence, the the left legitimized the right wing rhetoric and the right wing talking points, and that why that's why it's dangerous. So it's not like they they did anything more than provide cover and provide a veneer of objectivity towards these conspiracy theories and again using palestine as a cloak to cover those up yeah 100 percent. and uh you know the 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 uh exploitation of the palestinian cause is just that's something that really because we all grew up you know learning about palestine and you know the palestinian cause and when you see you know these some of these arab leftists and regime especially they they use Palestine to advance their interests, and then you, at the same time, you look back at what happened to you to the Yarmouk camp, you know how Assad regime pulverized it, and you just wonder how do people, how do people like just entertain those two ideas, not see a contradiction? Well, cognitive dissonance is real. 
Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent, man, hundred percent. Um, Ariane, I have one final question. Honestly, this has been really great, and uh, you've 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 went through so much in a short period of time, and I really appreciate that, and I hope uh, my audience will benefit from this. I wanted to ask you, um, which, and I know this is you know, kind of like an open-ended question, but I wanted to, to kind of see what you thought. What is your opinion about the future of the Syrian uprising? Do you feel like it's this is it? You know, this is how it's going to be for a while. Do you think it's unsustainable? We'd love to see what you have to say about this. So, Yasin uh, Al-Hajj said something uh, mm-hmm. recently, which really resonated with me. He said that there are three impossibilities. The first impossibility is revolution in Syria, but it did happen. The second impossibility is the destruction of the Syrian society and the Syrian nation state. And that seems impossible, but it actually did happen. And the third one is the uh, Syrian liberation. At Syrian liberation, it can only happen from the impossible uh, door. So we can talk about, you know, be defeatist and talk about the, you know, the, the defeat of the revolution. But that's being very myopic and not understanding how history works. Yep. Because in, you know, when you look back at, at historical events, revolutions not always succeed at first, but they, it takes them decades to actually realize their end goals. So the sheer fact that what happened in Syria 10 years ago it didn't, you know, finish the job in, in basically replacing Assad and the fact that Assad is still around doesn't mean that the revolution failed. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would argue totally opposite. And I say that the revolution succeeded because it brought down the wall of fear and the wall of silence that existed within societies for decades, for 50 years. Mm-hmm. That wall is no longer there. You have now a huge portion of Syrians that have experienced freedom, that experience, even though it was briefly, and they know the taste of that. And people, once you have the taste of that, you never want to go back. I remember my, my cousins telling me that when they went to Dara, after, you know, um, uh, the few weeks, he, they said that the, the air tasted different because mm-hmm. they were able to just walk down the street and say whatever they want and not have to look over their shoulders afraid of mukhabarat. Mm-hmm. And they said that that's the first time they felt they're, they're alive. Mm-hmm. Now, you have an entire population now, millions of people that actually experienced that. And those people aren't going to go back. Even, though, even the ones that are still in Syria, they're being still oppressed and starved to death right now. So eventually, you know, you know, it will it will come to an end now what what how when that all rem- remains to be seen but i would say this is not the end of the war or the end of the battle to my opinion this is just the start and revolutions tend to last um you know a long time it's not something that that happens overnight uh, in 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 many cases and this is just the beginning and we should have hope because, you know, 
if we don't, then what's the point of going on? That's true. That's true. And and just to touch upon one thing, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, that this was the 10th anniversary of the Syrian uprising. And just there were some videos in Dara of people protesting, dancing, chanting anti-Assad slogans. So till today, this still exists. And uh, in your province, especially Aghian, you know, just to kind of, I know this is a bit detailed, but I don't, I think there is benefit to it. Uh, the people who are running Dara are basically rebels who have just kind of reconciled. The Assad regime doesn't really have, in my, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't really have that firm, uh, you know, grip on the on the province itself. True, it still remains to be outside its uh, totalitarian control. True, true. I mean, it's 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 going to be interesting to see how how things will will be unfolding, you know, in the next few years. But what I do know is the following. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm not the only one, I think millions and millions and millions of Syrians agree, is that there can never be a reconciliation with Assad and that regime. We can never have peace. You can never say, we're going to reform this. It cannot happen. Mm-hmm. So what for any steps towards peace, reconciliation, etc., Assad has to go. So one way or another, it has to happen. Um, so the, the whole idea that we can keep Assad and and normalize things and move forward is is just not going to happen and this is a great great way to end this episode Arian. thank you so much for being on we really appreciate it i mean it's it's always great to have you and i've been following you for a long time and to have you on the tripolitan has been a true honor thank you thank you for for giving me the opportunity man i appreciate it thank you uh, the honor is mine Thank you, thank you. And uh, whoever wants to, for the audience, if uh, you want to follow Arian on Twitter, uh, if you want to give out your Twitter handle, Arian, if they want to follow your know, Siri-related events. at Agidamas, okay. A-U-G-I-E-D-A-M-O-U-S. Perfect, perfect. Thank you again, and have a good day, everybody.